Hi everyone, welcome to episode 79 of the Dangerous History Podcast. This will be the third part of my extended conversation with irregular warfare expert Bill Bupert of ZeroGov.com. Some of the topics we talk about in this episode will include, but of course not be limited to, T.E. Lawrence, a.k.a. Lawrence of Arabia, Michael Collins and the guerrilla warfare of the Anglo-Irish War, and Mao Zedong and the Chinese Civil War, as well as various side trips along the way. First, though, just a quick shout-out to our newest Patreon supporters of the show, Muchos Gracias 2, Andrew, Nick, Thomas, Matt, and Tana Joy, for stepping up to help out the Dangerous History Podcast over at patreon.com slash profcj. Remember, if you pledge to support the show there for any amount per episode, I will thank you by name on the next episode that I record after you sign up. And if you pledge at least $1 per episode, more is certainly welcome. By all means, pledge 2 3 4 5 20 bucks an episode if you're so inclined. But for just a pledge of $1 an episode, you'll have access to special bonus episodes that are only available to my Patreon supporters there. By the way, just a news update to let anyone know who's either a Patreon supporter or perhaps who is considering becoming one, I am still working on my research for the next bonus episode. It is on the way. It's the one that's going to be on the history of samurai and ninjas. And this is just one of those episodes where I keep discovering new sources that I want to consult, that I want to look at as I'm working on the material. So I apologize for the delay on that. I hope to have already had that out by now. But it's just one of those subjects that sometimes happens for me where I keep digging and it takes me longer to complete the research than I thought it would. But that should be coming out on Patreon for my Patreon supporters within the next week to week and a half at most. And I hope that after all of the time I'm putting into it, that it will really be a great episode. Anyway, I'm very happy to share with you the third part of my conversation with Bill on the history of irregular warfare. Was down the glen one Easter morn to a city fair old I. Those armored lines of marching men in squadrons passed me by. No pipe did hum, no battle drum did sound its dread tattoo. But the Angela's bells or the liffy swell rang out or the foggy dew. Bill, welcome back yet again to the Dangerous History Podcast for part three of our discussion of irregular warfare. Hey, thanks, CJ. And uh, to repeat, it's an honor to be to get the call from CJ to say, hey, why don't we do a podcast together? Because I, uh, your body of work, I think, is, is, is pathfinding and blazing a new trail of libertarian historiography that may do Rothbard justice. Wow, thank you. That that's quite a compliment indeed. Certainly. Um so where we left off last time, I we got through let's see, I think the Boers right around the turn of the 20th century. We did. And so the the next kind of big case of 
Irregular Warfare is, of course, the famous T.E. Lawrence, also known as Lawrence of Arabia, author of how many pillars was it? Seven Pillars of Wisdom? Seven Pillars of Wisdom. A tedious but philosophically thick book that I urge everybody to read if they get a chance, but be prepared because it is a slog. It's an intellectual slog. None of that Lawrence could write. Lawrence was a medievalist. And being a medievalist, he was also a talented writer. And I think he had a broader historical worldview and, of course, a British-infused worldview. And he was fascinated by cartography, fascinated by maps, fascinated by intelligence. So he was a guy who may have been perfectly fit to be in the time that he was. I think everybody's familiar with David Lean's 1962 production of Lawrence of Arabia with Peter O'Toole taking his first star turn in the cinema in that. I, I did want to read an excerpt about T. Lawrence, if I may, real quick, and then there's something sure, else please. I want to say, which is, and this is from uh, Porch's book that I suggest, A Counterinsurgency Exposing the Myths of the New Way of War, which audience buys any book as a coindonista anti-venom. This is the one. Counterinsurgency Exposing the Myths of the New Way of War by Douglas Porch. It will be available, I think, as a matter of fact, it is available on one of your podcasts already that we've done, in which you put there under as an Amazon link. Well, to quote, the distinction between the two approaches was somewhat artificial in speaking to Lord, Lord Wingate during World War II. Lawrence had been forced to rely on a limited popular mobilization of the Bedouin because attempts to introduce trained British, even Egyptian soldiers, into the Hijaz in 1916 had met violent religious objections that threatened to split Faisal's coalition. By the time Lawrence reached Damascus, his Bedou insurrectionary army more resembled an all-arms mobile column that incorporated Egyptian regulars, a camel corps, an armored car troop, an artillery battery, and Gurkha and Egyptian demolition parties. And its essential operational and tactical characteristics, therefore, the Arab revolt foreshadowed Gideon Force and long-range patrol groups, that would be the SAS during World War II, with their pink Fords, rather than different from them. Nor was Lawrence a military amateur, as was so popularly shown either in the movies or if one read Revolt in the Desert. He was an experienced intelligence officer who carried out thorough reconnaissance and topographical studies and carefully planned each operation on the basis of intelligence gleaned from POW interrogations and elsewhere. He also pioneered air support to insurgent forces, which foreshadowed Wingate's logistical and support innovations in Burma in 1943. And what he's talking about there is Ord Wingate, a very interesting, eccentric British brigadier during World War II, who would often entertain staff meetings naked himself. And he was also in charge of the Chindits and part of the guerrilla operations that were critical in the China-Burmese-India theater during World War II, which was a fairly successful allied insurgency operation against the Japanese. So I just wanted to bring that to the fore because the immediate thing that I want to put to bed about T.E. Lawrence is that he was a military amateur because he was not. He was very gifted in what he did. He was very gifted in what he pulled off. And there's a reason that between 1918 and 1920, we find that Lawrence finds himself at odds with Whitehall and the British colonial office because they're starting to erect these 90 degree turns on the map in the sand, in the Middle East, where they're carving out portions of the Middle East and saying, here's the British mandate for Palestine, here's the British mandate for Iraq. And Lawrence is raising his hand and saying, 
you realize that if you don't take clan, blood, feud obligations, honor obligations, cultural nexi, those kind of things into consideration here, you are creating conflict hotspots by confining them within these national borders you're creating out of whole cloth on napkins. Of course, Churchill ignored him. The, The one additional thing I wanted to add to that, I consider 1916 to 1922 to be what I call peak G. We've heard that there's peak state, there's peak oil. I call this peak G for peak gorilla because you had Michael Collins in the Anglo-Irish War during that time. Here you had T.E. Lawrence from 1916 to 1920. I say 1916 to 1920 because from 1918 to 1920, as I just alluded, Lawrence was trying to convince the British Home Secretary and the Colonial Office that what they were doing in the Middle East was creating what has actually turned into a centuries-old, multi-generational, multi-faceted, multi-state conflict as a result of those map lines. And of course, we had Paul Emil von Leto Vorbeck, who I talked about in the last episode, who stands in 1916 after four years fighting in German East Africa as the only undefeated German general on planet Earth at the time. That's why I like to refer to this as peak G, but we can get back to Lawrence. I just wanted to, to, to infuse that if I could. Sure. Uh, and, you know, another another little uh, side journey here, but uh, you mentioned Ord Wingate and the Chindits. Yeah. And coincidentally, I'm probably one of the, the few other people besides yourself who are Americans who are at all familiar with that operation. Excellent. Um, when, when I was in graduate school, I had a, a graduate-level World War II class, which the uh, professor of that class was so terrible as, as, a, as a teacher – that he managed to make a graduate-level course on World War II excruciatingly boring, <laughs> which takes a, a, a level of deliberate uh, in- incompetence. I mean, you know, say whatever else you want about World War II, it's interesting. Like, it shouldn't take a lot of work to make it interesting. But it does take a lot of work to make it painfully uninteresting. But um, w- one of the few things I enjoyed about that class was writing a, a large sort of term paper slash historiographical essay that I did on the CBI theater, the China-Burma-India theater of World War II. And I basically picked it because it's got to be the least known part of World War II to most people, not just Americans, but to most people who aren't from South Asia. I, I, th- I think you're right. And, and I'm going to put you on the spot here, CJ. Is there any way that you could post that as a PDF on your site? I don't know if I could find it. Well, if you could. I, I, if you yeah, I think yeah, it'd be I'm, a great resource. Much like uh, when I, for our first episode, I had I had accessed the PDFs for both the interview with Herman Balch and also that essay on Leto Vorbeck. I think that you'd link to those. Yes. Yeah. I have very few of my grad school papers still, unfortunately. Okay. Um, a series of of moves and computer changes without. Without diligently, you know, putting everything on external hard drives or otherwise backing it up, yeah, have have led to me missing most of my my electronic grad school documents. I still have a binder full of handwritten notes, and I still have my my major original research grad school, you know, sort of like a thesis. But as far as all the individual papers I wrote in grad school, unfortunately, most of them are lost. That's too bad. And a smart thing to do is is to post them on your blog or your podcast homepage as addenda, and that way you'll have them forever because maybe they'll be clouded or maybe people will, will download them and keep them. And then if you ever lose them, you can go, hey, anybody got a copy of this? 
I know, and and I would have only in this would have been let's see, two thousand and four. Oh, I see. Okay, <laughs> in two thousand and four, I I had no no blog, no podcast, no anything like that. Um, but anyway, side side note. But yeah, the 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 whole CBI theater of the war is fascinating, and the Chindits, and yeah, Ord Wingate showing up buck naked various places. <laughs> yes. I mean, he was. I, I don't. Yeah, I, I don't I've know never, about you, but I, I just love eccentric characters. I, so I love people who are just so crazy. I have to tell you, though, that in the modern American armed forces, eccentricity is not acceptable. And the British were accepting of that. And I think, of course, that was part of their class system when you've been inbreeding for so long. I remember, I think it was <laughs> Herman Mueller of the Gestapo during the war to save Joseph Stalin had something to said something to the effect that the British royalty are so inbred that they have the intelligence of chickens and have to be reminded to disrobe and remove their clothing before getting in the bathtub. <laughs> well, it does give them um, sometimes eccentricity to the point of, of being insane geniuses for like certain Wingate things. And like Lawrence. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so probably most of the listeners have, have a basic idea, but just in case any of them don't, that during World War One. The Ottoman Empire, which was still at least nominally in control of of uh, the Middle East at the time, was an ally of of Germany. And so, as a kind of typical British peripheral strategy, where you you hit your enemy at some place other than kind of like their main you know central location where they could defend themselves better, um, you go someplace where out on the fringes where your enemy is weak. Um, as as the British did in Canada in, in the French and Indian War. Um, but in the case of World War I, they decided to try and pick off Germany's ally, the Ottoman, the Ottoman Empire. And one of the tools they used to do this was, of course, T.E. Lawrence stirring up the Arabs to revolt against the Ottomans, who were at least theoretically um, sovereign over the Arabian Peninsula now. The Ottoman Empire had been the sick man of Europe for quite a long time already by this point. Many areas were de facto self-governing anyway, but that's that's the origin. So so T.E. Lawrence is, is one of – and there were others but not as famous as he was, probably because they're not as eccentric. Well, I, I agree. What's interesting too is that Lawrence just so happened, I think, to write the 1927 entry on guerrilla warfare for the 1929 edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica. And Liddell Hart, who I mentioned last time, talked about indirect and direct conflict. He praised Lawrence for providing a wider and more profound treatment of guerrilla warfare than Clausewitz by demonstrating its offensive value. So I, I think Lawrence is underappreciated. But one thing that I want to leave the audience with, and we're going to talk a lot about this in the next episode per our previous conversation, CJ, I am not a proponent of counterinsurgency, and I will explain why in the second hour. I am a student of counterinsurgency, and I'm a student of insurgency, and I think that when I look for successful insurgents, I find a whole host of those compared to successful counterinsurgents. The reason I make that point, CJ, is that right now, coin is real sexy. Counterinsurgency is a real sexy phrase to use, and we got soft operators out there, and how many guys have you met who have been in the service who say, well, I, I can't really tell you what I did because I'd have to kill you? Or, well, uh, I, uh, 
I've just I've, I've seen a lot of conflict and and I was uh, I was a coin operator I was an operator I was all this stuff you know there's a lot of that going on I think a lot of that is stolen valor and exaggeration but you see the media the Hollywood the government media education complex all making the coin denistas out to be these really savvy guys who have really broken the code on small wars petty wars imperial wars this kind of conflict that is maybe a bit in the shadows, not quite the conventional contretemps that we read about in the history books while we were in school. I just want to make the point that Lawrence and Collins and Leto Vorbeck were premier practitioners of insurgency and not counterinsurgency. What do you think made Lawrence, like what are some of the key factors uh, in terms of his, his tactics, his strategy, his overall approach to stirring up the Arabs against the the Turks that made him successful and and that you know are lessons that that apply to then later successful insurgencies. I think what you're gonna find in insurgencies, there there are a host of of important considerations in what makes an insurgency become live, gain strength, and get mass based support, because absent mass based support, it cannot extend into the future and get bigger and bigger and more and more successful at what they're trying to do, which is one of two things, as I mentioned in the last podcast. They are either trying to carve out their own new nation-state or maybe even a non-nation-state or state-repellent region, like James C. Scott talks about with Zomia in Southeast Asia, or they're trying to take over the government in toto that they are fighting. That would be narrative and legitimacy. Now, legitimacy, of course, is in train with grievances. Those grievances can be real or perceived, but if they're perceived grievances that appear to be 180 degrees out from reality, but they set fire to the mass base, they set fire to the auxiliaries, they set fire to the to the trigger men, and they make them real in their application of prosecution of a conflict, then they become real grievances in toto, which lends them legitimacy. But absent that legitimacy, absent those grievances, absent a narrative, if you don't have those three components, and I'm certain that some experts out there can add components to that, those are the three that I would come up with. I would consider those to be three pillars, to, to, to uh, borrow a sideways allegory, to seven pillars of wisdom, three pillars of success for this. And how did Lawrence do that? Lawrence felt that under Faisal, the Bedou didn't have the political representation and the reason in the region, whether it's recognized by the British or is recognized by the Ottoman Empire at the, at the time, because the Ottoman Empire simply looked at them as satraps, simply looked at them as clients, where Faisal wanted much more self-direction and self-determination for his Bedou people. Narrative. What's fascinating about the Middle East is we are talking about a region in which you have degrees of illiteracy that are unmet or unmatched in the West. Yet, Despite the fact that you have those degrees of illiteracy, in my travels throughout the Middle East, in Afghanistan, for instance, what I've discovered is that I can talk to an Afghan, he could be illiterate, he can't write, he can't read, but he can tell me who his seventh grandfather removed was by name, and he can tell me of his exploits, and he can count it down with his eyes closed as if he's just been told by his father, grandfather, or great-grandfather those very things. The other thing is, you have multi-generational household, households in the Middle East that not only know of these 
generations where you'll have three to five generations living under one roof, but you also have fertility rate that exceeds that of the West. You have uncles, you have aunts, you have cousins, you have nephews, you have all of the curious in China, for instance, with the one-child policy that you don't have nephews, cousins, brothers, sisters, uncles, things like that. Who knows what that extrapolated consequence is. But in the Middle East, when you have that, and then you match that to a religion, Islam, and, and remember, is, Islam has a lot of Arabic residuals, and a lot of these Arabic residuals are just what I spoke to concerning family, clan, bloodlines, that kind of thing, and having that kind of knowledge. That means that in the counterinsurgency business, when you hit one house in Afghanistan or in Iraq, or when Lawrence was trying to capitalize on the Bedou, if he could hire one person from that house and convince them to join his army, he would be joined by 7, 10, 12, 24, 36 family members, because that's the way it worked, especially if he had managed to influence a patriarch to do that. Now, of course, storytelling, narrative, is a huge part of the Bedou culture, and I would say it's a huge part of Middle Eastern culture. And for you and I, as, as amateur historians, CJ, storytelling is what brings history alive. History isn't simply dry dates and events. History is cause and effect. History is storytelling, and, and it's also that, that constant question you and I always have, well, was it great events or was it great men? Did one create the other? Did the other influence the other? You know, there's no answer to that. That's a rhetorical question. So narrative's important, legitimacy is important, and grievances are important. And Lawrence played those like a, like a Stradivarius violin with the Bedou and managed, after I think three or four by officers who had been sent to Faisal's court, to convince Faisal to unite his Bedou and fight in concert with the British and the Egyptians to get the Ottoman Turks out. Yeah, and, and uh, what a contrast with something like, say, the uh, the Dardanelles campaign, right, Gallipoli. Oh, my gosh. Where, you know... Churchill's another the, accidental <laughs> military commander, like Washington. You know, where I, we had said in a previous episode, uh, Rothbard referred to Washington as General Lissimo, and, and he certainly was. <laughs> but you're right about Churchill. You look at the Dardanelles, you you look at the uh, the Australian campaign at Gallipoli, you look at what he did in 1940 and 1941, some of the disasters that took place as a result of that. You look at Operation Keelhaul at the end of the war to save Joseph Stalin. And all the, the man was, was just a, uh, a terrific rhetorician, but a monstrous statist and a man who had such a bloodlust, but he was such an incompetent militant. Yeah, yeah. He was absolutely terrible as a strategist. I mean, I, I can't think of any major strategic decision Churchill ever made that worked out well. Nor can I. But then again, you know, the, the English were always known in most circles as, as doddering and ineffective in both World War I and World War II. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, when you look at, you know, the, the British and the Anzacs and so on, how, how they fared when they sent a, a conventional force in conventional battle against the Turks' conventional army, and, you know, they pretty well had their asses handed to them. Yes, they did. And compare that to what Lawrence was able to accomplish with, I'm, I'm sure, I haven't looked up the figures, but I'm sure it was a significantly less uh, of an investment of resources and so on into Lawrence's operation that the British made. Well, it was. As and, a matter of fact, when, when he made his assault on Aqaba, he did not use the traditional three-to-one ratio advantage over them. I, I think it was closer to two-to-one or, or maybe one-and-a-half-to-one, yet he defeated Aqaba. Yeah. Uh, that, the Turkish, that's, Turkish garrison 
that's probably his most famous operation, I, I would guess. And Damascus. Yeah. Right. Aqaba was the one where he had to cross the uh, enormous, super harsh desert that nobody thought anyone could cross, right? The anvil. Right. Yes. And I think it was even one of the things that um, – can't remember the author's name. The book "The Obstacle Is the Way." I think he even brought brought up that operation, right? Ryan Holiday. Yes. What a great book. Yeah, interesting book, and you know that's a another sort of of lesson that I think has has lots of applications to lots of things aside from just war. That if you can figure out how to turn what looks like a problem or a shortcoming into an advantage. And in, in war, you see it with people figuring out ways to attack that the enemy thinks is an impossible route from which to attack. Right. Yeah. But, you know, to apply that, that basic mindset to other problems and situations in life, um, you know, I, I think is pretty much the, the basic thesis of the obstacle is the way. Well, for instance, uh, going to the Revolutionary War One in America – uh, when when uh, Bunker Hill took place and they were building, you know, the colonials were building revetments and and the uh, the siege walls and everything like that, the British were absolutely astonished at the uh, at the industry and speed by which they built all of these ramparts and such. But then again, they were they were they were creatures of their time in that these were men who were working with the colonials in this case. These were men who had been working with their hands, you know. All day long, from dawn to dusk, six, seven days a week, that's what they did. So that kind of industry would only surprise people who were strangers in the midst, like the lobsterbacks were, who were there on rotation. It, it, it's, it's funny. You've heard the term learning organization. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's a popular term that's really fashionable today where they say, well, we need to create the tactical operational strategic level. Learning organizations. I can't tell you the number of commentators and authors I have read who are critical of the British being held on high as these military practitioners of merit of both conventional and unconventional warfare, referring to them as forgetting organizations, especially the colonial office. Yeah. Did did Lawrence face a lot of a lot of pushback like from up the chain of command? In other words, did he have to constantly be more or less rebelling against those above him in the British military? in order to do what he was doing? He did indeed, and he relates that in Seven Pillars of Wisdom. But here's the thing. Yes, I am a, um, an admirer of Lawrence, but I think that all autobiography, to one extent or another, is fiction. Because, of course, you're going to aggrandize yourself, and you're going you're to try to make yourself, you're, tr- you're going to try to put yourself in the best light. So that's why I try to be rather critical of my interrogation of, of Lawrence's book. He says in Seven Pillars of Wisdom, he was always fighting the Arab Bureau, as they were called back then, which was an adjunct of the colonial secretary in the colonial office where they were administering the empire from. So he says that he did that kind of did get that kind of pushback. But one thing I've got to give the British, and we just alluded to this, is that they did not take their eccentrics and, and drive them out of the army. They they would sometimes embrace them, and in this case, fortunately they did. Do you think that that part of the reason why Lawrence was given a longer leash, as it were, to do do things more his way, do you think it might have might have been to some degree just sort of negligence on the part of the British command that that maybe to many of them that that part of the war was just not a priority in in a similar way to how um, so it's a Leonard back Vorbeck, like a 
backwater theater like Leto Vorbeck. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so he so he gets a free hand like uh, Leto Vorbeck did to kind of run things his way, even when it's not by the book. I do think so. And you especially see that in Leto Vorbeck's case where he almost got veto authority de facto and de jure over the German colonial governor at the time because that governor was so ineffective. And Leto Vorbeck had received his mission intent from the German general staff back in Germany. And they almost went into radio silence after that as far as receiving any communications whatsoever from Germany because I, I, I can't – I can't put my thumb on this, but I do think it was a forgotten theater for the Germans. Yeah, it certainly is a forgotten theater for most of us today. Speaking of Leto Vorbeck, if I may, and we're, I think sure. this, is, this is perfectly consonant with talking about Peak G, which is Michael Collins, T.E. Lawrence, and Leto Vorbeck. And, and I'll bet your readers and your audience can probably come up with some others that I would love to hear about, folks that, that I wasn't aware of who did some pretty miraculous things. Leto Vorbeck. Yes, I do admire him, like I do Collins and Lawrence. But I admire these gentlemen with reservations. And one of those reservations is, have you heard of the Herero and the Maqua genocides in German Namibia at the turn of the 20th century? Um, no, not specifically. 24,000 to 100,000 Herero, 10,000 Nama died in this German colony. And this may be where the Germans got the idea to bureaucratize com- concentration camps, identification badges for ethnicity, that kind of thing. And Leto Vorbeck, even though he wasn't in charge, he was under a Lothar von Trotha. He participated in this, and he participated, if, if I can read this correctly, in some very noxious stuff to include concentration camps, to include mass killings, to include mass starvation and things like this. And they did employ the Schutztruppe in German Namibia at the time. So when I'm speaking of Leto Vorbeck and speaking of all these men, I don't want anybody to think that I'm giving them a, uh, a free pass for any kind of immoral practices that they may have participated in. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I, I want to echo that for me as well because you know, it's, it's one thing when you're, when you're looking at a, a specific aspect of a person's career – you know, in this case, looking at someone's career as a as a soldier or as a guerrilla fighter or what have you, it's one thing to to admire them for their their cleverness, their strategic savvy, or or what have you, or for their their innovations and their outside the box thinking. Um, it's a, it's another thing entirely to to endorse all of the rest of the things they might have done in their career, or even in some cases to endorse their goals because. A lot of these people, like I think we've said in a previous episode, a lot of these people are fighting ultimately to impose a regime that, whether they intended it to or not, is likely to end up being worse than the regime they're kicking out. Which is most likely the case for both Lawrence and Leto Vorbeck and Michael Collins, who you and I had agreed to talk about during this episode. Maybe the exception to that, and I can't endorse everything that Michael Collins did, like his Bloody Sunday hit on the castle in 1920, but... We'll talk about that. Sure. And with Michael Collins, I guess it's sort of hard, at least for me, to tell how much of what ended up happening once Ireland became a free state and then a republic, how much of that can be blamed on Collins versus Eamon de Valera. Uh, Eamon de Valera and his his associates, you know, these guys were simply the – I guess the titular heads of their respective organizations, because there was a bifurcation once Collins came from London with 
the uh, the papers that say we are a free state, but we remain a Dominion Commonwealth, and of course that's what caused the uh, the Irish Civil War to blossom in 1920, 1921. Well, um, was there anything else you wanted to add on on Lawrence and his campaign? Um, any any innovations we haven't mentioned yet? Any any lessons we can learn from that? Well, I. That's why I read that uh, that preamble that described him not as the plotting military amateur that that he was. I do think that militarily he was uh, he was a prodigy. He really was in what he accomplished. Of course, these prodigies are also children of their circumstances, and in this case, he was given a lot of what he got on a platter, took advantage of it in a very clever fashion. I like that word "clever" that she used. And he was fighting against the Ottoman Turks, who I characterize much like the British. They, uh, they rarely earn a military victory without an urge to defeat themselves every step of the way. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and, of course, I have to ask before, before we move on from Lawrence then, what is your opinion of, of the famous film? Do you think it, it – I mean the, there's, no, there's no historical movie I'm aware of that's 100 percent accurate to the facts as we know them. But yeah. do you think that movie more or less does Lawrence's story justice or it, are there significant problems with it? What's your take on the movie? I love the movie. It's, it's, it's my favorite movie of all time. I mean cinematographically, CJ, oh, wow. it is one of the most gorgeous movies ever filmed. I, I put it up there with Kurosawa's films like Seven Samurai. I just think it's it's astonishing how well Lenser was. It's astonishing the performance you get out of Peter O'Toole as Lawrence. And you could tell that Lawrence – you could tell that O'Toole had read Lawrence. You could tell because he was really channeling Lawrence in, in a good way. Was it ahistorical? Of course it was. It was as ahistorical as the Michael Collins movie with Liam Neeson. And whoever's going to portray Leto Warbeck in the epic biopic that they have, of course they're going to lend artistic license to it. I love the movie. I, I think it's extraordinary. And, and the the thing that I so like about the movie is not only is it executed well, but it really shows Lawrence to be a, a burr in the saddle of what the British colonial office wants to do every step of the way. And there is a follow-on film starring Ralph Fenns as Lawrence – that talks about what happened post-World War I in 1918 to 1920, where he is battling Churchill and the very thing I described earlier in the podcast. So I love the movie. I urge everybody to see it who hasn't seen it. Just from a, a cinematic standpoint, the movie's astonishing. And from a, from a historical standpoint, a grain of salt is required. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I suppose, by the standards of, of historical feature films, it's certainly not as bad as some in terms of deviating from. Yeah, if, if you want, if you want feature films that that really speak to history in a in an accurate fashion, they are few and far between. For instance, I think Battle of Algiers comes close. It does come close. Yeah, I I haven't had a chance to watch that one yet. I did watch. You recommended to me that one and also Intimate Enemies. Intimate Enemies. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Intimate Enemies. I did manage to find time to watch this week on Netflix. Excellent. And, Which, by the way, is about for the for the audience members if if they're not aware of it. Intimate Enemies is a French film. I think it's English subtitled that covers yes. the Algerian War of Independence from about fifty two to fifty eight. Yeah, and looks at 
how the French approached counterinsurgency <laughs> there and what how it worked so well. Yeah. Yeah, and, and a very a very unflinching look at at the the inevitable brutality that even even soldiers who go into a conflict like that with the best of intentions, if they don't end up getting killed, they end up losing basically losing their soul, so to speak. I can't recall your counterinsurgency campaign that I've ever read about or 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 maybe seen a film or two about that hasn't at least tangentially spoke to that, where it can turn the participants on both sides into monsters. Yeah, and, and that film, Intimate Enemies, I, I think takes takes a, a more – and it's incredible that the French made this. I guess they had to wait you know, 60 years to make a movie like that about that conflict. It was well done, don't you think? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, it was very well made, and it really, I think, got deeper into a lot of these philosophical questions of these sorts of conflicts – than than most films that have covered that. I mean, I, I don't know if there's even an American Vietnam War movie that that comes close to to that. Um, just just gazing into the abyss. No, I don't think so either. And I th- I I think you've really put your finger on the pulse of the film because I don't want to give the the ending away. But what happens to the protagonist when he goes back to France and finds that he he can no longer be a Frenchman in France and must return to Algeria? I think what happens to him in the end. He sort of knows that's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that one scene where he's back in France um, on leave and, and he goes to the movie theater. And of course, back then they're showing film reels, of yes. uh, uh, film, film uh, news footage, excuse me, um, like before the feature starts or whatever. And it's, you know, propaganda about, oh, the glorious war in Algeria and we're helping to spread civilization and <laughs> all these sort of things. And I mean, just, you know, after having seen all the all the rest of the movie prior to that and then watching this this soldier sitting through watching that and you can just tell like the look on his face and everything. I mean, you really feel like, yeah, it's all bullshit. If you get a chance, we should put that in the uh, the the show notes. Oh yeah, absolutely. To take a look at that film, I, and and of course, what I always put out to the audience is if if you guys know of any other obscure films or books out there that CJ and I haven't mentioned, please uh, give us. But love to hear it. Okay, so moving along, then I guess to to Ireland, you've got you know what about eight hundred years of various various levels of of British incursions into Ireland and various degrees of control once the Protestant Reformation takes hold. The the British start to crack down more on Ireland because of that and the paranoia about the uh the Spanish in particular using Ireland as like a, a backdoor to to threaten the British. And actually my my professor I had in, in graduate school I did a independent study graduate course on the history of modern Ireland. And the professor that I worked with on that was my advisor, who was an expert on sort of all things having to do with the modern British Isles. And the way he put it when talking about how the the British and the English in particular were so paranoid about Ireland in sort of the 16th, 17th century is he said, they saw Ireland as if it is a giant aircraft carrier right off their coast. <laughs> and so if the Spanish were able to seize control of that aircraft carrier, you know, they're able to use it as a very effective base from which to seriously threaten uh, threaten England. Uh, it, so 
You know, and, and they had their first rising in 1534, the Silk and Thomas Rebellion. And then, you know, from there, it's on as far as the Irish having these periodic rebellions against them. You know, wait 30 years and there's another one in 1569. There's yeah, another one they, in 1641. There's another one in 1798. Yeah. So. Yeah, they really upped the ante, the British did, um, under James I in, I guess it was 1607, right as, right as they were also setting up the Virginia colony where they started the policy of plantation, as they called it, yep. sending in English and Scottish colonists to uh, take as much land as they could from the Catholic uh, indigenous peoples yeah. and then set up these, these plantations. And they used the same, the same terminology in their colonization of Ireland that they used in their colonization of Virginia. They even referred to the, to the indigenous people in both cases in the same terms. You know, they talked about the Celtic Irish in almost the same language that they talked about the American savages. Well, and in almost the same language as South Rons would talk about their slaves. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and that really kind of that early 17th century onward colonization threw another monkey wrench into the mix, which, always makes an insurgency a lot more complicated to me, which is when you have a an actual colonizing population, right? You have people from the mother country who then become residents in the colony for many generations. And and then you've got you've got a situation where it becomes much trickier from the mother country's perspective, even if they want to cut their losses and disengage, now they've got the problem of a significant you know, population, same thing the French had in Algeria and, and the British also had in many other places, including Rhodesia. Oh, where... abs- absolutely. You know, when it comes to, I, I was just going to say, when it comes to the British, when you look at Kenya, when you look at uh, Aden, when you look at Oman, they would send in these colonists that you're talking about, and they would become loyalist collaborators with police and military counterinsurgency forces. And I think the police really mechanized the brutality, but the loyalist collaborators, as you saw in that movie, Intimate Enemies, when you talk about the fight against the FLN by some of the, the Pete Noir, the, the, the French colonists in Algeria, when they started their own paramilitary campaigns against the FLN, that's where the savagery really takes place and, and, and gets root. Yeah. And it, and it makes it so much harder, even if the the mother country decides that it wants to just cut its losses and, and leave that colony, it becomes so much more difficult for them to do so politically if there's this, you know, loyalist population, so to speak. And I, I think that's clearly the case with Ireland because I think by the turn of the 20th century, if not even a little bit earlier, a lot of British politicians really would have wanted to just cleanse their hands of the whole Ireland mess. And it was the fact that you had the significant loyalist population that prevented them from being able to do that, say, in like 1900 or thereabouts. Well, fast forward to uh, to the last 40 years with the trouble starting in, in 69, where things really took a turn for the worst in Northern Ireland after those, I think it was 26 counties went to the free state and the remaining six counties became what's now called Northern Ireland as a satrap of the United Kingdom. Look how the Protestants behaved in the ruck, the Royal Ulster Constabulary and such, and the kind of savagery and barbarism they visited upon the Catholics. Now, that's not to say the Catholic IRA, the Reformed IRA, the Provincial IRA, the Real IRA, and all the IRA, you know, spinoffs and such, that they didn't practice their own form of savagery. But 
when it came to loyalist collaboration with London, they tended to be the most savage when it came to their treatment of the Irish Catholics. Yeah, have you seen the film uh, 71? I did a, I did a review of it a few episodes back on, on the podcast. Who was in that? I've seen several several of those films. Okay, it, it's a pretty recent one. It just came out on DVD in the last few months. The title of the film was just called 71. I don't think it had any, any famous actors in it, at least no one I recognized. But it's the story of this this fairly green from what we can tell British recruit to the army who is sent in 1971 over to Northern Ireland. Okay. And there's, um, there's a, I think one of his first days out, one of his first missions, you know, they're searching Catholic homes and harassing people and whatever. And there's sort of a scuffle with some of the, the local people from the neighborhood kind of come out and seem to be about to cause a mini riot. And in the scuffle, this young young soldier gets separated from his unit, and the unit leaves, and he's stranded. And the remainder of the film is essentially him trying to, you know, go through all these these dangerous, hostile neighborhoods and make it back to his barracks. And along the way, he bumps into all sorts of things he's not supposed to see. Let's just put it that way. Uh, oh, interesting. British, okay. British military intelligence types who are doing stuff they're not supposed to be doing, and he witnesses these things, and it becomes very, very complicated. But I'm going anyway. to put that on my list of films to watch, and there's a, there's a whole interesting subgenre on the Irish Troubles, all going you know 800 years back, as a matter of fact. But uh, oh, Bloody yeah. Sunday is a great one. Uh, Michael Collins, of course, is, is a good one, despite its being ahistorical to a certain extent. Uh, but I think The Wind Shakes the Barley. Wind Shakes the Barley, yeah, yeah. That's another good one. So we should make a list of those for, for the audience so they can check those out. Yes, yes, But I've we'll definitely do. put that on my list to watch. It reminds me of a long-form journalism article that I read, and I'll see if I can find it so I can send it to you to put in the show notes, where there's an IRA operative who's been captured by MA5. He's in a safe house in Northern Ireland, and he's being sweated, and he's being beat, and all the rest of it. And all of a sudden, he recognizes that the man who is interrogating him, a member of the IRA, is a member of the IRA himself undercover. Yeah, that kind of thing seems common, and yeah. especially yeah. When, when you get into people like like British military intelligence and SAS and what have you, yeah. there's there's a lot of times where they're playing both sides for one reason or another. Well, as we'll discover <laughs> in all of this, especially when we discuss, uh, let's say, Anbar province and the awakening in Iraq, uh, when we discuss Afghanistan, when we discuss what the British did after the war to save Joseph Stalin, we'll, we'll see a lot of that. Okay, so... There's the there's the 1798 uprising in Ireland, probably one of one of the more famous ones in in song and story. After which, I think it was 1801, you get the Act of Union, which incorporated Ireland into the UK, all of Ireland at that time, in in the same manner that Scotland had about a century earlier. 1746 for Scotland. Okay, yeah, um, yeah I, I think it was 1801 was the Act of Union, and it was largely in response to. The rising of 1798, yeah. the idea of right. we need to clamp down on these people. And so then throughout the 19th century, you have Ireland legally, according to parliament, and a part of the UK and periodic uprisings and rebellions and, and nationalist political movements of various types, you know, Parnell and all these people. And then you have and the Fenian Brotherhood emerging. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that was the one that was 
sort of a, a like a cultural revival organization, right? But it also had yeah. Yeah. had had paramilitary training elements, or am I thinking of it a different paid, one? It paved the way for the Irish Republican Brotherhood, which would become the Irish Republican Army. But that was the first. I think when when the Fenian Brotherhood came about in 1866 to 71, that was when you had your first germination of that paramilitary organization that was organized in a fashion that would lead to the 1916 Rising, where they actually fought as a conventional force. By the by, the end of the 19th century, it seems like there was, particularly amongst the the liberal party, for the most part, in in the British Parliament, there was there was a feeling of kind of what I was saying before of. Maybe it is time to, you know, let Ireland go or at least loosen them, give them some some internal self-government. And you had the the Home Rule Bill passed, was it 1912, 1914, something like that. The parliament actually passed the Home Rule Bill, which would give Ireland largely internal self-government a la Canada at the time. And then what ruined that being implemented was the outbreak of the First World War. You bring up something really interesting here, and I and I, I was hoping we'd get a chance to tackle this. You and I are pretty deep readers of history, and I've noticed that we can't isolate our, our examinations and interrogations of, of these affairs to one particular place, one particular time we can. But in that time stream, there's a lot going on elsewhere that causes things to happen. For instance, in Kenya, what we find is that during the time they were putting down the Mau Mau Rebellion, or let's say the germination of the Mau Mau Rebellion, because of the Korean War, rubber and fuel went through the roof as far as prices, which priced out the Kikiyu and other tribes in British Kenya to provide for themselves and have self-sufficiency, which led to oathing campaigns, which the British called Mau Maus. And it led to all these kind of things. So what I'm trying to tease out here is that these factors aren't simply independent and, 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 and single-focused and pillar-focused or, or you know, just looking through a cylinder or telescope at that one place and everything happens right there. All of this is interconnected. All of this is very complexified. I think chaos theory has, has a lot of explanations for why this happens the way it does. Because like the French and Indian Wars, why did the French and Indian Wars become the first world war? Well, they did because... The French and the British were fighting each other planet-wide, not simply on that Canadian-American frontier. Same thing here in Ireland. They weren't simply fighting the Irish at the time. Imagine the, the rebellions that occurred during World War I, where the Irish, for 800 years, they'd been occupied. And all of a sudden, the British are coming and saying, here's your rifle, here's your script, we need you to go fight for us over on the continent. Well, they don't want to do that. So, of course, that would build up. And that would so the very fact that the British got involved in World War One, and I think this is what you're alluding to, CJ, sort of exacerbated and may have led directly to the Easter Rising happening in 1916 and not 1920 or 1926. If it yeah, hadn't I, been, I, if it hadn't been for World War One, yeah, I, I honestly am am dubious that there would have been an Easter Rising at all, if not for World War One, because. If not for World War One, all indicators are that Home Rule would have been imp- implemented in Ireland. It had been passed by the Parliament, despite you know strong Unionist opposition to it. It had passed the Parliament. Yeah. You know, it was only the outbreak of World War One that caused 
the the unionist types to be able to say, well, you know, we don't want to have this huge dramatic change under taking place in the UK while we're fighting World War One. So let's just put it on indefinite hiatus. And they managed to get implementation of home rule shelved. But how, if Ireland would how, have gotten home yeah. rule implemented, I don't think there would have been nearly as much support for ultimately having full on insurrection. How interesting. I, I, I do think there's a lot to be said for that, but I also think there's a lot to be said for the fact that the rising takes place in 1916, and of course the rising is put down by the British with conventional alacrity when they, they lay siege to the administrative building in the postal offices that the Irish Republican Brotherhood had taken over and fought in, in a fairly conventional fashion and lost to the British at the time. But if it hadn't been for the sheer exhaustion of the British in 1918... I don't think that they would have even been in a position where they would have offered home rule if not for that exhaustion. So I'm, I guess I'm sort of calling a counterpoint to you saying that if it weren't for World War I, they would have been granted home rule. My thinking on this, and this is what historians do, we, 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 we dither about these minor points. My thinking is, is that the exhaustion in 1918 from World War I is what led the British eventually to the negotiating table, along with something else that I want to bring up after we're finished with this this small segment. Okay, so pulling up in my notes, yeah. Yeah. 1914, 1914 the 3rd Irish Home Rule Bill yeah. passed. Now, do you know what month that was passed in 1914? Because, of course, we have the hostilities starting in August. Yeah, I'm, I'm pulling that up. Passed by the Parliament, third time introduced in 28 years. It says, Royal Assent, 18 September 1914, the third Irish Home Rule uh, Bill. Which means that there was a prime, minister, a prime ministerial imprimatur of approval on it? Um, as far as I can tell, yeah, I'm just so pulling what, this up on Wikipedia. So what uh, month would that be then? Yeah, it says, it says September of 1914. Um, is when the bill reached the statute book. Yet they weren't granted their independence or their free state status. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the bill passed, and then, and I don't know the exact mechanism under which they the British government basically said, "Well, we've passed this bill. It technically is part of part of uh, you know British law to pass home rule home rule for Ireland," but then they did not implement it because of the First World War. Um, okay, here we go. The Suspensory Act ensured that home rule would be postponed for the duration of the conflict and would not come into operation until the end of the war. I see. So that, that speaks to why 1916 happened then. Because imagine imagine they're given this – the Irish at last, after 800 years, are given this opportunity for the third time in 28 years. It passes. It even has a royal imprimatur of approval attached to it. Then they say, ah, uh, not quite. Yeah, yeah. You you can imagine the the anger on the part of even what we might call moderate Irish nationalists. Absolutely. Who who would have been satisfied with Canadian style Dominion status, having a parliament for their internal affairs, but still being part of the British Commonwealth. Lots of Catholic Irish would have probably been fine with that at the time, but to have it after three attempts finally passed the parliament after you know 30 years of of trying to get that passed through the parliament it passes and it passes at the same time it immediately is said oh it's on de- indefinite hiatus because of the war 
I mean, yeah. that, that, would, yeah. that would just make you furious if you were an Irish nationalist. So it sort of speaks to why, and, and I'm certain, as you and I both know, there are many reasons for these things happening. You can't really pin it down to one, but it certainly speaks sure. to why the 1916 Rising occurred when it did. Yeah, plus, I mean, the, the men who participated in that were much more uh, radical Republicans, with a small r, who wanted Ireland to be a fully sovereign yeah. uh, republic. What would have been – those are the types of guys who would have not been satisfied with dominion status anyway. But um, the fact that even dominion status was, was not granted certainly explains why they were willing to, to rise up in 1916 – and also explains part of why the population eventually got behind them, that plus the, the viciousness of the British response to the rising. And it, it, what I want the audience to draw from this, this brief interlocution that CJ and I have had about dates is this is how historians can make dates really interesting. Unlike that dry, rote memorization all of us suffered through K through 12. This isn't about that. This is fascinating because of this reason. 1916, rising occurs. It's put down. 1914 to 1918, we have the Irish fighting, reluctantly conscripted to go fight in the Somme and fight in all these bloody second-generation, anachronistic, almost medieval battlefields where they're ankle-deep in blood all the time. And maybe they've been in a trench or a trench line for three years if they've survived that long. 1918 rolls around. We have the armistice. We have the Versailles Treaty. And then the Irish come and they say, hey, what about it? And what do the British say? They say, well, it was suspended, but it will continue to be suspended. Now, I get that impression from the way the IRB and the IRA start to behave from 1918 to 1921, especially in 1920, because what happens in 1920? Anybody who's seen the movie with uh, Liam Neeson, there's a, uh, a pastiche in the movie where he simultaneously murders and assassinates this elite flying squad that was sent from London that occupies something called the castle. He assigns what they call the squad, the IRA squad, Michael Collins group, to do, do this and pull it off on what they call Bloody Sunday, which is 21 November 1920. Well, of course, this is received in London. It's just a, a horrific act of terrorism. But what happens that very same afternoon at Croke Park? The British Blacks and Tans go to a soccer stadium and they manage to massacre civilians on the very same day that Michael Collins does this awful thing. Maybe a retribution to that or maybe just yet another in the tapestry of horrific atrocities that the Blacks and Tans and other British paramilitaries and loyalists committed against the Irish Republican Brotherhood, the Fenians, and the, the emerging IRA. My thesis on this is that the reason shortly after this Churchill and London were given into this is because of something called the Jallianwallabagh Massacre. And the Jallianwallabagh Massacre, also known as the Amritsar Massacre, took place on 13 April 1919, one year after the cessation of hostilities of World War I in the British Raj. There's 370 dead, there's 1,200 wounded, all Indians, all the result of a British army formation opening fire on civilians. We'll, we'll make sure we put this in the show notes that, so that people can get another backgrounder on this. Match journalistic technology telecommunications at the time, which weren't ancient even by our standards because they had telegraphs and, and they could get instant transmission of this. This caused a, a, just a huge controversy in Britain at the time. 
picture, this is 13 April 1919 when this happens. Churchill delivers what I would say is one of the his career. Now, you know, he's a speechifier of merit. I, I think he's one of the greatest rhetorical speakers of all time, even though I think he's a monstrous status and a bloodthirsty warmonger. But nonetheless, I'll give him that. The Sam Ritzar speech, astonishing. The Sam Ritzar speech by Churchill, the warmonger, where he's just ashamed of what British arms did, which is shocking to come from Churchill. When I look at this, and I look at the exhaustion of World War I, I see a perfect storm brewing here where after 800 years of occupation, these events, probably along with others, coalesced to make London say, okay, okay, we're going we're gonna to grant you a free state because we're tired of all this and we simply haven't the patience, the manpower, nor the political will, nor capital anymore after Jolly, Jolly and Wallaba, the Amritsar massacre, and the Croak massacre, and these kind of things. So 1920, in November, when those agents are massacred at the castle, I think you had a perfect storm here. I think that the British were just so tired of it, they wanted to wash their hands off of it, and I think that these events coalesced to give Collins the opportunity to free Ireland from the UK. That's my pet theory. Although although he didn't free it from the UK entirely, it was a free state within they they still acknowledge the the British crown as the the head of state the way Canada did. Dominion. And yeah, yeah, and and it wasn't it wasn't until I forget the exact year, but it was it was at least several several years later when when Ireland successfully achieved actual republican status at least for the the southern portion of the island, of the island right all, all yeah. the all the counties except for all except for the six counties of ulster so what do you think are the are the things that that you would point to about michael collins that you know why why was he so effective as a leader of insurgency you know he died at the age of 32 young man but precocious man intelligent man industrious man always about town, always coalesce. He reminds me of Paul Revere, who was a member of two dozen different committees, committees of correspondence, uh, committees of insurrection, Sons of Liberty, those kind of things. He was a great communicator. He was a charismatic leader. He inspired people. He could really speechify. He was a keen intelligence operator, and he also knew the importance of intelligence preparation of the battle space, as it were, and he could do that, and he had his finger on the pulse, and he had a vast network within the mass base and his auxiliaries, not just his trigger men, with whom he could correspond, even folks that he had castle, folks he had inside the, the British constabulary offices that had Irish workers in them and Irish detectives and such. He had this entire network of operatives that he could sort of play like a like a harpsichord to 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 a high degree, where I think he could make his intelligence operators have operational and strategic impact, and not simply tactical impact. Here's how I would sum it up: There's a phrase called strategic compression, which is where you use tactical means to achieve strategic ends. I think he was a master at doing that the entire time, while while he was both a uh, flying column commander and an intelligence operative, and, and I guess he was the minister of intelligence in the shadow government in Ireland. He just he just brought all these parts and pieces together. Leto Vorbeck had the same thing, that kind of charismatic leadership style. Lawrence, of course, had that same kind of thing. 
It's uh, what we spoke to earlier in the episode where I said this was peak gorilla, like peak oil or, or uh, peak deep state, where 1922, there was just in the Western world, there was this disproportionate amount of martial talent on the insurgent side, much like the martial talent on the southern side from 1861 to 63 in the American conflict. And in the case of, of Michael Collins, the British, as as they and so many other imperial powers often do, the, the, the British played right into his hands the way they responded to the initial Irish operations. You know, the way with the various massacres, with the, uh, the, the special constables, the black and tans, as they, as they were known, everything that the British did to try and crack down ended up strengthening those things you just mentioned about Collins. In other words, the more the British cracked down, the more he got popular support, far beyond what they had at the time of the Rising. And the more he was able to get more um, intelligence assets on his side, more people, even within the, the Irish you know, official administration uh, of the British authorities to, to give him information. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think that's a, it's just a, a classic illustration, as in so many of these conflicts, that the more you crack down in a conventional sense and try and wipe out the insurgency just you know through through blunt force, the more that always ends up strengthening the insurgency because the 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 very things that that are backlash by cracking down are the things that lend support to the insurgents. And I'm going to speak to that in detail in the next episode when we talk about some of the, uh, the bare bones and details of insurgency and counterinsurgency and things like that. I, I, I think you're right. The Collins just had an extraordinary facility with this. But remember also, he was fighting against a power that, like I said earlier, the British win all their military victories in spite of their best efforts. I'm convinced of that when I look at them historically, especially in the 20th century. Let's see. Um, any Anything else you could think of specifically that you want to add in terms of the Anglo-Irish War, the early 20th century. Um, you know, one thing I would throw out there is the Easter Rising itself, obviously from a, from a purely military standpoint, was kind of stupid, right? I mean, they, they, didn't, they didn't have a chance that they were going to be able to hold out those buildings in Dublin against the British Army. But it seems to me that one way you could see the Easter Rising, in, in which it was brilliant and worked as intended – was as a form of propaganda by deed. I agree with that a hundred percent. I was just gonna, I was just gonna say something that there may have been some savvy commanders who knew that it would cost them blood. No better way to consolidate mass-based legitimacy, air the grievances, and then the British reaction to that airing of the grievances would make it so that anybody who was on the fence would hop off the fence and get on the side of the IRB and the IRA. So in, in that way, it's, it has a little bit of a similarity to, you know, depending on how much we want to go with the official narrative or not, but September 11th, wherein bin Laden, you know, according to him, basically his, his strategy was hit America, not because that, that one attack was going to cause America to go away or whatever, but in, in fact to sucker punch America into then invading bin Laden's home turf, so to speak – in which bin Laden could fight defensively on the cheap and basically give Team America the same result that, that he'd given to the Soviet Union. I agree with that. 
A hundred percent. And I would also add that I think that bin Laden, a former federal employee, of course, in the 1980s in Afghanistan fighting against the Russians, that he knew that economic self-immolation would be imposed by America on itself through the military industrial complex, their creation of rationing up of an, of an even more powerful and expensive national security state. You know, you've got the TSA, you've got DOD and the Pentagram all of a sudden sending their armed tentacles worldwide into Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Yemen, Syria, Horn of Africa, all these things. That's very expensive. And so for whatever his budget was to pull off 911, and I, by the way, I don't want to get into the 911 truther thing or anything like that. For those who don't believe that he was responsible for 911, who believe it was a false flag operation, the Israelis were behind it, the reptiloids, let's simply suspend our disbelief and just make the working assumption that bin Laden was behind it. And if he was, did he succeed? And I think the answer to that is he succeeded beyond his dreams. Yeah, I think he expected Team America would probably charge into Afghanistan. But uh, everything I've heard indicates that that uh, charging into Iraq as well was was quite the bonus extra credit uh, Christmas <laughs> present to bin yes, Laden. Indeed, indeed. You heard what happened I mean, to the bin Ladens, that they just got kicked out of Saudi Arabia because apparently it was the family bin Ladens company that owned the crane that was at Mecca that caused all of those deaths and injuries. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, um, maybe they'll be moving into the uh, the Bush Ranch out there in uh, in Midland, Texas. <laughs> maybe so. <laughs> and they can all walk around holding hands and all that good stuff. Indeed. Um, anything else? That, that you'd like to add on the topic of, of Michael Collins and the Irish or? You know, uh, for students of, of insurgency and counterinsurgency, and the reason why I think that we should all be students of that is because whether we like it or not, there is a coming storm in America. Whether that storm is characterized by kinetic, non-kinetic, peaceful, non-peaceful means, things are going to change in the next two decades to the extent where you will not recognize a map of these United States in 2030. It's going to look completely different than it looks now. If you're studying this now, you will be able to foreshadow and maybe get a little smarter about what I would refer to as the coming endarkenment, in that all of us, to a certain extent, should be students of insurgency, counterinsurgency, unconventional war, conventional warfare, to one extent or another, simply be to be better informed about what's going to happen on the home turf in America. So here's what, what the Irish Rebellion gives us, and, and I think you and I spoke to this in another episode, CJ. It is the only English-language rebellion that has so much primary and secondary source documentation where you can read it for tactical, operational, strategic, and grand strategic significance. You can read it for political shenanigans, you could read it for operational means and tactics, techni techniques, and procedures. I mean, there's any number of things that one can draw from this to figure out what is this template going to look like in America or any other places around the globe. And I offer this one disclaimer. No insurgency is the same as another because of the unique imprimatur and, and the unique circumstances under which each one of those takes place. You look at Aden, you look at Oman, and you look at Cyprus, and you look at Balea, and you look at Kenya. They were all geographically 
close by American standards. They were close, but all of them were singularly individual in the way the insurgents behaved, but they were not individual in the way the counterinsurgents behaved because as we're going to discuss in the next episode, counterinsurgency tends to bloody, lengthening process of a long war. And you've already mentioned several times this concept of peak G or peak guerrilla in the West in roughly, you know, World War One era and the aftermath yeah. with, with Leto Vorbeck, who, whom we talked about last time, and then Lawrence and, and Michael Collins. And um, is, is there anything else you'd like to add about, about this, this sort of concept? I mean, do you have any thoughts as to why there was such a proliferation of innovative and successful guerrilla fighters and guerrilla leaders during this time period? Well, I think that massive wars such as World War I, World War II, the wars between Germany and France in 1870, uh, the Napoleonic Wars, they always have theaters. And within these theaters, grievances, whether perceived or real, like I discussed, are going to surface because there will be opportunists, whether political, guerrilla, whatever the case may be, who will use the larger conflict to open up a new theater within that conflict for political, philosophical, or ethnic gain. And I think that's what, what you see here. I, I think Collins was smart enough, along with De Valera. I think De Valera was a devilish, devilishly cunning and, and ruthless politician, much like Churchill. And I don't hold him in the highest odor, but I do hold his political instincts in the highest odor. And I think that he knew what he was about when it came to that. So I think in larger conflicts, what we see is pay attention to what's happening in the supposed backwater theaters, subsidiary theaters, things like that. For instance, you brought it up earlier, CJ, when you were talking about the Chinese Burma India theater with the Chintits and with Ord Wingate and with some of the American efforts of Merrill's Marauders and things like that. You saw some real innovation going on there that was cutting edge as far as anything else that was going going on around the globe. A globe engulfed in war, but in that CBI conflict, so much was really advancing beyond the envelope that had even been pressed by the rest of the planet. Does that make sense? Yeah. And do you think also that the, when it comes to just things like the, the tactical innovation of those sorts of people, that it might have just simply been a response to second generation warfare kind of reaching its nadir? In, in the First World War. In other words, it, it had kind of gone as far as it was going to go. It was at the point where you had millions of casualties to gain 100 yards uh, in trench warfare. And, and that intelligent thinking people, wherever they happened to be and whatever grievances they may have been motivated by, intelligent people were able to look at the way war was unfolding in Europe and say, yeah, that, that's, not, <laughs> that's, that's not a very efficient or effective way to achieve one's political goals, doing that. And so you, you get these uh, you know, insurgent tactics as, as like a solution to how to solve your political problems without having to engage in mass second-generation warfare. I, I, I think you're right. And, and those members of the audience who aren't familiar with the generations of warfare, I would urge you to listen to episode one uh, of this podcast series in which we discussed what those are so that we don't take the time right now. I would say that Lawrence practiced both 3 and 4G and that Collins practiced 3G and that Leto Vorbeck practice both 3 and 4G. Just curious, wh why would you say Collins you would not include with fourth generation? Oh, no, I, then I misspoke. I meant he did fourth oh, okay. generation and not third generation. 
Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Now, I would suggest that Collins, if he had survived the assassination, would have engaged in third-generation warfare against his fellow Irishmen if the Civil War had continued. Yeah, yeah, that, I, I think that's also... Because these guys were the progenitors possible. of the flying columns. And flying columns, of course, go back to what the commandos did in the Boer War. Jumping ahead in, in time, um, you have the, the Chinese Civil War that, I guess, unfolded over several decades, including before, during, and after World War II, in which you had the quasi-fascist nationalists fighting against the communists. And out of this, of course, we get Mao Zedong, one of the greatest mass-murdering monsters of history, I think by some measures, arguably the greatest in just overall body count. And yeah. – um, but but a guy again you know we we can we can admire certain aspects of of people or skills that they had or what have you without at all endorsing you know the the ends to which they put these skills Certainly. what's what's your assessment of Mao Zedong when it comes to unconventional warfare does he deserve to be considered the um you know the the genius the innovator on that front that he's usually given credit for i think he does because because of the influence that is manifest planet-wide. You even had the Sendero Luminoso in South America, the Shining Path, who were Maoist guerrillas. You, you still have Maoist guerrillas around the world. How are Maoist guerrillas different from communist guerrillas or Soviet guerrillas? I really can't put my finger on it because some will say, well, it's more political. But I think that the whole idea of having a political military bundle being in the insurgents toolkit is universal. His ruthlessness, I think, really uh, really comes to mind. But then again, when I look at Stalin's ruthlessness, when I look at you know how the Soviets behave, how the Cubans have behaved, how uh, the Vietnamese communists behaved after seventy five, uh, it it to think of him as anything more than one of the authors of the abattoir. I I. I do think that he managed to create a hybrid of political will married to military might that worked in the 20th century. But I'll bet if I went back in a time machine and I gave Mao's little black book to Klaus Fitz, Klaus Fitz would have said, well, it, it sounds perfectly good to me. I mean, he's got it wired for sound. I do think that's what Klaus Fitz would say about Mao. Yeah, Mao... It's it's interesting what I've studied of of how he how he operated and ran things during the Civil War versus how he ran the state that he created in 1949 when he won the Civil War. It seems like when he was still fighting the Civil War, he had great respect for the rights of the civilian population in China. Like he understood how important legitimacy was, and he he did things like ordered his his fighters to always treat civilians that they dealt with very, very uh, humanely and fairly, to, to never confiscate things from them without paying for it, to, you know, always be just like very polite and, and so on with civilians. Now, of course, that, that all went out the window once Mao was in control of the Chinese state, but he had the strategic savvy to understand that he, if he kept the civilian population, particularly the, the countryside peasants on his side – that he would be more li- more likely to win. Meanwhile, the nationalists were completely oblivious to this. The nationalists 
were, um, you know, just going around and cracking down on civilians who, who weren't supportive of them and so on. So it's just always, always struck me as, as interesting that during the Civil War, Mao's forces actually were, were nicer to the civilian population than were the forces of Chiang Kai-shek. I, I, I think your assessment's correct. Uh, as a matter of fact, there were, there were some Marine Raider battalions that based their, uh, their election of officers within the battalion, and I think this was the CBI, on Maoist principles. So it wasn't unknown that he was even having an influence in the war in which he was consolidating all of his power against Chiang Kai-shek. Yeah, he understood the importance of of those things you mentioned before, legitimacy, grievances, and narrative, in a way yeah. that it seems like the, the Chinese nationalists were just clueless about. But you know what? I, I am hard-pressed to, uh, to think of a leader who hasn't been soured and drunk on the power they inherit as a result of their military victory, east or west, with the exceptions of maybe General Lee, or Cincinnatus back in uh, ancient Roman times. Uh, most of the time, I mean, even, even if we go to a fictional representation of Moadib in Dune, what, what happens to him once he unites the Fremen and they, they, they kick the, the empire off their planet of Arrakis, he becomes a dictator. It, it seems to me that this, this dictatorial meme is active in any post-conflict peaceful they simply don't want to lose power. And this is something, CJ, that you and I bring to this conversation that most conventional historians ignore. Oh, you mean the fact that uh, we don't think that the state is the highest level of <laughs> ethics and human civilization and the path to peace, freedom, and prosperity? The state is not those things? Indeed. Indeed. It's because you and I, if I may be presumptuous, are abolitionists who think that self-ownership and the right to only surrender that self-ownership under my own consent, the lack of belief in implied consent, and the belief in, in the fact that I should be able to have self-determination, self-determination at the atomistic level, that should inform everything that I do, because I'm not a coercionist. Yeah, what you were saying before about the tendency for, for quote-unquote freedom fighters to to uh, become anti-freedom once they have, they have triumphed, that brings to mind to me, and I, I know it's probably a cliche at this point, but it, it really is quite an apt metaphor, uh, Tolkien in Lord of the Rings. You know, the notion of you, you defeat the forces of darkness, and then you, instead of throwing the ring in the volcano, you say, all right, I've got the ring now, so uh, I'm going to use the ring to do lots of good stuff. Exactly, exactly. I, you know, Tolkien, I think, was a Christian anarchist, if I recall. Yeah, I, I've, I've read a couple of biographies of him. He's a very interesting character, devout Catholic, but also somewhat of an anarchist, almost in the Hoppian sense, because he seems to have had some sympathy for old school monarchy. But um, he, that, in his own... I think, CJ, that's because, like Lewis, he was a medievalist, like Lawrence, he was a medievalist. Yeah. And a lot of us yeah. have this, this, you probably have the name for this. Chronologically, we think that simply because we live in 2015, we're superior to everybody. Who lived in 1915, and Lewis and Tolkien, and I think Lawrence to a certain extent, knew that just because the the folks lived in the medieval period of time, 500, 600, 700 years before them, we we didn't just happen to be morally or philosophically superior to them. To a certain extent, Lewis and Tolkien championed 
a cosmic medievalist imagination that was much more expansive, receiving, and tolerant than the ones that are possessed in the 20th and the 21st century. Yeah, and, and there are plenty of historians who have covered the fact that in, in many cases, the monarchies of the medieval period were in fact quite limited in their power. They, they were not absolute monarchies until at least the 17th century. And that throughout the medieval period, the monarchs were you know, hemmed in by many different uh, uh, counterbalancing forces and, and in many ways were far more limited than a democratically elected government of today. And th- but there were still monsters. I mean, oh, all sure. of them, uh, almost to a man. When you look at, he was in the Monty Python troupe and he did Medieval Lives on BBC and he did an extraordinary, uh, uh, Terry Jones, I think it is. We'll be able to yeah, stipulate sure. that because we'll put it in the show notes. Terry Jones, I think it was, did these overviews of uh, British royalty, British knights, those kind of things. And it really is a monstrous history that they have when it comes to that. Martin Van Creveld wrote a book concerning the emergence of the nation state. And he sort of agrees with what you're saying, CJ, where between the 15th and the 17th, let's say between the 13th and the 16th century, before technical accountancy procedures and a bureaucratic class in order to be able to control his realm beyond his sight until that evolved, he couldn't really do that. He did just like you described. He'd have these little fiefdoms to which he would add contiguous to those fiefdoms lords or collaborators through theft or, or you know pillaging of the public treasury, whatever the case may be. He got them into his camp, and that's how he expanded his power. But once you have technical accountancy standards and once you have a bureaucratic class who could be sent away to do those things for you out of your sight, now, of course, are they skimming off the top? Of course they are. But you're, in the aggregate, you're getting more wealth and treasure as a result of that. Yeah, there, there is that, that school of thought that, um, you know, as, as obviously imperfect and oppressive and gangster-like as they could be, that, that <laughs> at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the old school medieval monarchs just simply didn't have the degree of real life logistical power That's that the right. modern state does. Yeah. Um, although, you know, the flip side, I guess, is that all of those, all of those local lords and things that are, um, you know, checking his power are also psychotic assholes themselves so it's not necessarily i mean you know these these people all tend to be psychopaths yes they do well of course psychopaths are self-selected to rule over others because that's what they want to do and most individualists i know don't want to tell other people what to do yeah and we and we don't have those of us who are who are non-psychopaths don't have the the skill or the the desire to be as deceptive and manipulative as one has to be in order to climb the ladder to the top of, of the state. That's right. That's right. You know, we don't want to participate in that Machiavellian intrigue, the palace whisper campaigns, and what I would characterize as making feces one of your five food groups in the advancement process. Yeah. One more, one more question related to Mao is um, I'd like to get your thoughts on his overall concept of the way that that a, a guerrilla war should go where you start off small using the sorts of tactics we would normally associate with guerrilla warfare but that the goal is ultimately to build your your material and popular support to the point where you can carry out conventional military operations it seems like in a lot of cases when guerrillas actually do that when they do actually try to fight conventionally once they've achieved some success that it almost always backfires 
I'll have to tease that out because if you look at Vietnam, for instance, you saw one of those cases where a robust and capable guerrilla force used in concert with a robust and capable conventional force, uh, force in this case, the North Vietnamese Army, had an almost seamless and operationally and strategically valuable alliance and coalition that worked. I mean, it simply worked and it worked well. Part of this, of course, is because of Chinese strategic thinking, which, of course, goes back to Sun Tzu, his great-grandson Sun Pin, and the rest. And in my blog piece that I refer to in one of the episodes called The Other Fight, Understanding Conventional Warfare, I provide a short book list for folks to read uh, to, to get conversant in this kind of thing. I think that Mao sort of bridged that very well, where he went from a guerrilla force, starting from a small to middling force, and eventually did have a hybrid force. The hybrid threat is all the uh, all the rage right now in the pentagram. But this hybrid force of both unconventional and conventional elements that he could in operational and strategic echelonments and use them well, and he managed to do that. But let's also remember that when Mao was consolidating China, he had no will whatsoever for extraterritorial ambition. Vietnam was the exception to the rule because when we look at Chinese history, how much extraterritorial exporting of hard power, hard power versus soft power, happens. And the reason why I say hard power is because the Chinese have soft power planet-wide right now. And they've been doing that for 50 years. They've especially been doing that since the 1970s, where you'll go down to South America, you'll go down to um, Indonesia and what's called Oceania, you'll go to Africa. There's Chinese combines, industrial concerns, industrial espionage, finance, banking, investments. They're everywhere. I mean, I was in the Philippines in, in 2014, and I was astonished at the amount of Chinese investment in the Philippines. But once we get a chance in the next episode to discuss Malaya, I'm going to explain how some of that Chinese soft power can be let awry. All right. Well, we didn't get quite through everything that we were going to, but we'll we'll cover that stuff in the next episode. So we'll go ahead and leave it there and reconvene in the next Dangerous History podcast episode. So I just want to thank Bill yet again for uh, spending the time and uh, sharing his expertise with us today. It was a pleasure and an honor as always, CJ, and uh, thanks for what you do. All right. Sincere thanks from me to Bill one more time for him being so generous with his time and expertise on all this. He is a true scholar warrior and a gentleman. Remember, if you have any comments about this particular episode, please feel free to place them in the comment section for this episode at my website, profcj.org. Also check out profcj.org for the show notes, which will be quite extensive for these uh, conversations with Bill. We're we're making lots of references and I'm posting lots of Amazon links to, to books and movies, some of which we mention explicitly in the episode, some of which are just, you know, cover the topics we talk about, but we may not have referenced the book directly in our conversation. And of course, feel free to email me with questions, comments, anything even remotely related to the Dangerous History podcast. My email address is profcj at profcj.org. You can follow me in the show on Facebook and Twitter, and you can subscribe to the show in a variety of ways, including iTunes and Stitcher. And remember, there are lots of ways you can support the show. One is simply to help spread the word in whatever ways you have available to you to people that you think might appreciate the show. 
And you can also help out the show financially in a variety of ways. One, of course, is through Patreon, as I mentioned at the start of the show. You can also donate directly in a few ways via profcj.org slash donate. You can send in a one-time or recurring PayPal donation, or you can donate via Bitcoin. And you can also help out the show financially by purchasing items from Amazon after first going through the links to Amazon found on my website. And again, in today's show notes, the Amazon links will include Bill's books as well as lots of books and even a few movies related to the various topics we talked about in this episode. Huge thank you to everyone who's donated or bought from my Amazon links or helped spread the word about the show recently. I very much appreciate it. Could not be building this thing without your help. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Look for the next episode with uh, me and Bill on Irregular Warfare to be coming out later this week. And then the final one will probably be coming out early the next week. So this has been Prof. CJ today, along with Bill Bupert again, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future. Glen, I rode again, and my heart with grief was sore. For I parted then with valiant men, whom I never will see no more. But to and fro in my dreams I go, and I'd kneel and pray for you. For slavery fled, O oh, glorious dead, when you fell in the foggy dew.